Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, hello, hello. It is Catherine. Thank you for joining me on Social Workers Rise for episode number two. So my goal with this podcast is really to bring you value, inspire you, and hopefully we learn a little bit from each other. So I'm going to be bringing on a lot of amazing guests that I'm super duper excited for to just talk about what they do, what their stories are, how they became social workers, and what they do now, like what interventions do they use, what is their target population, and most importantly, how can we, as outside social workers, or maybe people that we interact with on our daily lives, family members, friends, neighbors, how can we advocate for them, how can we be a support for them, also how can we, what does this look like on a, on a macro level, down to a micro level. So really all of those things to give you some actionable things to do. So I wanted to first talk about my role and kind of what I do. I mentioned in the first episode that my specialty is really with seniors and working with caregivers in the healthcare field. So I have been, I identify myself as generally a medical social worker. That's what I say at parties. So it doesn't sound so, so <laughs> depressing because there's nothing that will bring down a party mood than someone asking like, oh, what do you do for work? Well, I work with hospice. Nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to hear ho- the word hospice ever. Not even people who need hospice. A lot of times they're like, please don't just, just say that word. Just don't. It has a very bad connotation generally to it, even within the healthcare field, which is kind of, I'll talk about that later, but so, so I tell people I'm a medical social worker and then if they really want to dig in, I'll say, you know, I, yeah, I work with, with hospice and now it's a little bit easier because I work with palliative care. So I'm actually doing palliative care in a clinic right now. And it definitely is important to understand the differences between those two. So hospice care is for people who are... Sorry about that. My husband and daughter called me and my my daughter she's two and a half so she wanted to say hi and she was wondering where I was and why I'm not home I'm actually out going out with my friends tonight but 
Anyways, we're gonna go to cookie decorating. I'm super excited. I haven't been cookie decorating before, so I'm looking forward to it. Anyways, so I was talking about the difference between hospice and palliative care. Hospice is for people who are no longer seeking treatment. They have been diagnosed as having a terminal illness, and if the illness runs the general course, it will they will pass away within six months. That's kind of the general idea of it. And then palliative care is for people who also may be very, very sick and have chronic illnesses. And I would, a lot of these chronic illnesses, the, the common ones are going to be cancer, dementia, congestive heart failure, and COPD. And people can live many, many years with these conditions and they can be considered severe. And even though they aren't, these diseases will eventually kill them, their doctor has not determined that they're at the end of the illness. Maybe there's other treatment options that the patient is pursuing. And so therefore they go or they're on palliative care. And palliative care kind of depends on the program or the company that you're with. It can be long-term or short-term, anywhere from three months to a year. And again, there's not really set rules or guidelines as far as time-wise. It's a fairly new and flexible area of healthcare. And so... Palliative care and hospice are two different things. That's important to distinguish. And the other point that I want to make about hospice, it is a spectacular program. And it's one of my pet peeves. And I get offended when people say that because you're going to hospice, you're giving up on life. I don't think that is accurate at all. Because there comes a point in time for many, many people when they have pursued treatment for so long that due to the limits of our technology and medicine, there's just simply nothing else that can be done. The disease is not going to be reversed. The treatments at a certain point cause more harm than they do good. And so I think it's definitely an ethical issue to be offering and providing treatment to somebody knowing full well that they are likely to be worse off after the treatment than before. And that's one of the things that I encourage people to ask their doctors when they're considering treatments. Do I do another round of chemo? Do I try this new experimental treatment, I encourage them to talk to their doctor and and ask the doctor specifically, what is my quality of life expected to be after this treatment? Am I going to be the same I am now? Am I going to be worse? If I'm going to be worse, what is the likelihood that I'm going to recover from this? In the long run, is this going to be worth all of the pain and suffering I'm doing short term? And from there, they can make their decision 
on what they want to do and which direction they want to go. So hospice is really about the quality of life for people. And I've seen a lot of times where people have a much better quality of life and they live longer because they did not do the treatments. Especially people who are going to be older and who are already in fragile health. So for instance, I met a woman on hospice. She had stage four cancer, stage four breast cancer. And I'm sorry, it wasn't breast cancer. It was ovarian cancer. And they told her, you, if, the, if this runs its normal course, you're going to have about six months left to live. And would, do you want to start treatment? And she said, no, I don't want to start treatment. I just want to focus on my quality of life. I want to spend time with my family. I just want to enjoy my final days. She ended up staying on hospice with us for two years. Two years, you guys. And during that time, she had she had a really great time. <laughs> she was one of the, the, the spunkiest and happiest people I've seen where she was just fully accepting that I'm going to live each day to its fullest. I don't know when my last day is going to be. So I'm going to go, I'm going to have birthday parties. I'm going to have celebrations. Any chance she got, she would party. And it wasn't very often because, of course, her health was still fragile. But she made a point to have her friends over and spend time with her family. She wrote a book. She did a lot of things that brought her joy and peace. On the other hand, and she was in her like late 70s when, when, she, when I met her and when she passed away. On the other hand, there was a much younger gentleman who was in his 50s. And he had already done some chemotherapy that was not really helpful and he had accepted that that he didn't want to do any more that he just wanted to be comfortable but his wife was not accepting of that and he came off hospice service to do a treatment and gosh like 2 months later He came back on service and passed away shortly thereafter. And it's heartbreaking because a lot of times patients have to be their own advocates. And there are some hard questions that need to be asked. And they don't necessarily know or want to know the answers. And a lot of times doctors are not trained on how to have that conversation of there's nothing more that we can do that will be beneficial for you. And there's documentaries on this. Um, I forget the guy's, his last name is Atul. He did, oh gosh, it was a medical documentary on Netflix. It was really great talking specifically about how doctors are not trained to have conversations about end of life in medical school. Which is very unfortunate, um, but you know, that's, that's the reality that we're in right now. And so, so please, if somebody is considering hospice, 
it's not them giving up. I feel like it's them being strong and just accepting that this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. And I'm going to be the best person that I can be given my situation. And so that's that. That's the difference between hospice and palliative care. The other thing is that a lot of the work is actually with the caregivers, which is how I became so confident in being able to talk with caregivers and help them because a lot of times the patients themselves have accepted this, that they're very sick, that they're going to pass away, that they've lived with this disease for a very, very long time, and they're really kind of resting. They stay in bed and, and they are resting a lot. It's the caregivers, their, their spouses, the sons and the daughters, maybe even friends or neighbors who are caring for them 24 hours a day, and it's exhausting. It's just, I tell them, it's too much for one person to do. So you definitely, definitely need your support systems and you need people who are going to help you, who can give you a break. You have to do self-care. And there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of guilt and shame around leaving their loved one and a lot of control because the disease makes them feel so out of control. They can't control the disease, but they can control their schedule and who comes over, who they spend time with. So it's really important that the caregivers get the help that they need. And just that validation, telling them, you almost giving them permission to take that self-care and letting them know it's not being selfish that, you know, there's the old saying, you can't pour from an empty cup. It's very, very true. And us as social workers, we know that. We, in essence, a lot of times are caregivers ourselves. A lot of times when we work with patients, it's emotionally exhausting. Sometimes we take it home with us, even though we shouldn't. And then we go home and we might be caregivers for other people, maybe our spouses, children, maybe even our own parents. So it's very important that we ourselves understand that as caretakers, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to do whatever it is that we need we need to do. We need to relax. We need to unwind. We need to unplug. We need to have relationships, you guys. We need to be able to have, you know, three to five people in our lives at least who we can trust, who know us, and who get us. Because again, one person is not going to be enough. We really need more people in our lives. And with that said, there was a study that came out, I believe it was Cigna who did the study that said 61% of Americans are lonely. 61%. That is a lot, a lot of people. And in that study, it showed the physical health 
impacts that loneliness has on our lives, it's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It impacts our physical health. Of course, it impacts our mental health. It increases our risk for depression. It puts us at higher risk for suicide. It's a big deal, you guys. This loneliness study was shocking to me. So if you are able to to read that, please do. I definitely recommend it. It's important for us to know and to be able to recognize. And it's not only older adults who are single, I mean, who are lonely. It's a lot of youth. The loneliest demographic was actually the Generation Z. So the people who are, what is it, 22 and younger, something like that. So the youth are one of the loneliest populations. Definitely worth something for you to check out. So I just wanted to to also talk about how what we need to know for ourselves when we encounter people who maybe are at the end of their lives or we know somebody or maybe, you know, another client, you know, somebody generally, and if we need to advocate for them too, we just need to be present for them. A lot of complaints, or I don't know if they're complaints, but comments maybe that people have told me after they lost their spouse and when someone was very, very sick, or maybe once they got a really big diagnosis, was that people abandoned them. They felt abandoned by their friends and their family and their loved ones because people just didn't know what to say. They didn't know if they should talk about it, if they shouldn't talk about it. They just, and so they wouldn't say anything. And that was the most hurtful of all. So really just being present with somebody, and this goes for if somebody has lost a loved one, just showing up and being there and letting them know, hey, I'm here for you if you need somebody to talk or to be with, but I'm here for you. And you can even acknowledge, I don't know what to say and there is nothing that I can say except that I love you and I care about you. If that's true and that's how you feel, don't don't lie. <laughs> it's not the time for lying. Um, but just, you know, just being there. And so the, in, and in this, the loneliness state, the perception of how many people we have in our lives that we can trust, that we can rely on, is crucial. So it's not even saying like, oh, I talk to all these people all the time, but the fact that I know that I have friends that I can call right now when I'm having a hard time goes a very, very long way. Another thing that you can do if someone is struggling is to offer to help. They may not take you up on it or they may, but offer to help and give concrete suggestions. So for instance, if you're talking to a caregiver, maybe your maybe your mom is taking care of your dad and it's a 24-hour thing, your mom is likely very sweet, 
saying, oh, no, no, everything is fine. Don't even worry about it. It's fine. But you know that maybe she's stressed out and she doesn't get any time to herself. Just offer to like, hey, why don't I come sit with dad for a couple hours and you can get out of the house, go get your nails done, go do the grocery shopping, take a nap, take a shower, whatever it is. But just being there with that person can be a very big help for a caregiver. Another thing is you can offer to bring over food. So when we're stressed out, when we're overwhelmed, a lot of times we don't have the energy to make a meal, to um, to really think about eating sometimes. So just offer concrete ways that can help. Maybe it's, um, hey, why don't I come over and clean your house one day just as a favor um, or hire a housekeeper for the for a day. I don't know. Whatever it is, whatever you think it might be, offer concrete suggestions. That way it's not putting the burden on them to figure out what they need help with. It's easier to just say yes or no if this would be helpful or not. And so the other thing that we all need, even I have one, is an advanced directive. So, and this is an advanced directive for healthcare and for finances. And the advanced directive is a document that states who would make these decisions for you in the event that you cannot. So this is very important because uh, shit just gets crazy when there's no advanced directive in place and something massive happens. So I had a patient who was very, very, I mean, relatively young. She was, she was generally healthy and she one day had a massive stroke. The family didn't know what to do. Nobody had her paperwork. It was, it was just a hot mess. So she was at the hospital. They did everything. So they put in the ventilator. They put in the feeding tube. She really couldn't, she couldn't respond. There was nothing there. And they brought her home on hospice. And it was a really, really hard time for the family because they didn't know what mom wanted. I mean, does she want to be on the the machine? Does she not want to be on the machine? Should we take the machine off? When should we stop it? Should we continue feeding her to, to keep her alive, even though she's not really cognitively there? So a lot of these things make it very, very stressful for your loved ones and your family. So it's important that you have an advanced healthcare directive. You can use the five wishes document. You can probably find some free forms online and you can do this for your finances as well. So this is really helpful when you, when you, well, let's see. So I have one because if something happened to me, I want my husband to be able to access my bank account. My bank account only has my name on it and he has his bank account. So if something happened to me, I want him to be able to pay the bills still and to have access to that money. Same thing uh, 
we have a, a will and a trust. So if something happened to both of us, then we have in there designated like who gets our condo, who will have the rights to the bank account. Because my daughter is under 18, she cannot inherit that. So we have to designate somebody. If you don't do this with your property, if if you own anything, um, it's a nasty, nasty, long, expensive court process. So I highly recommend that you do it because once you have it in place, it's just like, oh, yep, here's the documents. Two weeks later, max, it's, it's given over to whoever it needs to go to. So it just makes life a whole heck of a lot easier for your people and your loved ones. And that's it as far as hospice and palliative care. That's kind of just the overall gist of things. I really, really, really love the work that I do. And I definitely feel that it's very meaningful. And I'm really optimistic for healthcare going forward. I just went to a meeting today. They were talking about, it was with some big, some big head honchos, like the CEO, the directors of the school of medicine for these particular major hospitals in Orange County. And I was very impressed with the amount of time they dedicated to talking about mental health. And there's this shift in awareness that people's mental health, their addictions, their uh, so, their social factors, they all impact their, their physical health. And we know this, like us as social workers, like we've known this forever, but now it's becoming to be a very common known fact amongst the medical professionals and in the healthcare industry. So I'm very, very excited to be part of healthcare at this time and to see how it evolves. And I did some research. So social work, the latest statistics according to the Bureau of Labor from 2018 to 2028. So it's 2020 now. In the next eight years, the child and family social workers, that industry is expected to grow 7%. The healthcare industry demand for social workers is going to grow 17%. That's huge. It said overall social work is growing at 11%, which is extremely faster and bigger than any of like all the other professions. That's a really high rate of growth. And the most is going is the mental health and substance abuse social workers. That is going to grow by 18%. So I'm really, really excited about these numbers, about this shift in dynamics, about social workers being more involved in the healthcare industry. We are beginning to be recognized for the amazing work that we do. The fact that we save companies so much money. It's crazy, you guys. It is so crazy. Our value and the amount of money that we are worth that we save these companies and we really need to be at the table. We need to be at the meetings. 
We need to lean in. We need to do all the things to make sure that our voices are being heard, that we're getting the respect and the money that we need and that we deserve because yes, we are saving these companies so much money. I don't even know how much money, but it's so much money. (laughs) As Trump would say, it's just so much money. It's just spectacular, the amount of money. (laughs) Oh, he cracks me up in so many different ways. So I'm super excited, you guys. We're going to have some guests coming on soon, but that's kind of my story as a hospice social worker. And I will talk to you all soon. Oh yeah, by the way, if you all love me, please leave a review and give me some stars so that other people just like you can find this podcast also. You can find me on Instagram at underscore catmore underscore. And that's my time. I'll talk to you all later.